Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. We'll start the show with Steve Bannon exiting stage right. What will a Trump administration look like without the president's chief strategist? Will a deeply divided country become slightly less so? Or has the die already been cast? Then, more vehicles used as weapons, the Spain attacks. Is there any way to protect against such acts of terror? Is this the new normal? I'll talk to Peter Bergen. Also, no one has done better than Germany in tackling an ugly past. Can America learn any lessons from it? And President Trump and the nuclear deal with Iran. The stupidest deal of all time. Why the president's disgust with that deal could lead to a major showdown next month. But first, here's my take. Much of America has reacted swiftly and strongly to Donald Trump's grotesque suggestion that there is a moral equivalence between the white supremacists who converged last weekend on Charlottesville, Virginia, and those who protested against them. But the delayed, qualified, and often mealy-mouthed reactions of many in America's leadership class tell a disturbing story about the country's elites and the reason we are living in an age of populist rebellion. The least respected of today's leaders are, of course, politicians. The public largely views them as craven and cowardly, pandering to polls and focus groups. And that is how too many Republican officials have behaved in the face of Trump's words and actions. Men and women who usually cannot stop pontificating on every topic on live TV, with some honorable exceptions, have suddenly gone mute on the biggest political subject of the day. I know, they worry about the base, about primaries, about right-wing donors. But shouldn't they also worry about their country and their conscience? Shouldn't they ask themselves why they went into public service in the first place? And if they see someone at the highest level trampling on the values of the country, shouldn't they speak up? directly, forcefully, and without qualification. Business leaders, meanwhile, are still among the most respected and envied people in America today. They run vast organizations, get paid on a scale that makes their predecessors from just 25 years ago look middle class, and live in a bubble of private planes, helicopters, and limousines. In other words, they have all the wealth, power, and security that should allow them to set standards and, well, lead. Instead, for the most part, business leaders have also been cowards. Most of them surely think Trump is a charlatan, a snake oil salesman. In the past, many chose not to do business with him because they believed he was unethical. Others were initially amused by his candidacy, but regarded his rhetoric on trade, immigration, refugees as loathsome. And yet, almost none of them spoke out against him. Few even distanced themselves from him after he blamed many sides for the violence in Charlottesville. Had Merck CEO Kenneth Frazier not resigned from one of Trump's advisory boards, it's unclear whether others would have spoken out. And even then, some jumped ship only when it became clear there was really no alternative, after Trump doubled down on his initial comments. 
America once did have more public-minded elites, but they came from a small, clubby world, the Protestant establishment. Not all were born rich, but they knew they had a secure place atop the country. They populated the country's boardrooms, public offices, and its best schools. This security gave them greater comfort in exercising moral leadership. Today, we have a more merit-based elite, what is often called a meritocracy. It has allowed people from all walks of life to rise up into positions of power and influence. But these new elites are more insecure, anxious, self-centered. Politicians are likely to be solo entrepreneurs, worried about the next primary or the fundraiser. CEOs live with the constant fear that they might lose their jobs or their company might lose its customers in an instant. They may not think they have the luxury to be high-minded, but they do. They are all vastly more secure than most people in America or in human history. If they cannot act out of broader interest, who can? The group of leaders who deserve the most praise this week are the military brass. In a remarkable act of leadership for people who work under the president, all five of the heads of the armed forces independently issued statements unequivocally denouncing racism and bigotry. Perhaps this is because the military has been the institution that has most successfully integrated America's diverse population. Perhaps it is because the military remains an old-fashioned place where a sense of honor, standards, and values still holds. The military chiefs have shown why they still command so much respect in the country. America's other elites should perhaps take note. For more, go to cnn.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. In the wake of the Charlottesville rally and attack last weekend, The New Yorker published a fascinating, frightening article entitled, Is America Headed for a New Kind of Civil War? The reporter talked to the experts and came to some startling conclusions. What is going on in America? How did we come to this? Joining me now, Robin Wright, the reporter of that New Yorker article. She is a contributing writer for TheNewYorker.com. She's also a joint fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace and the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars. Angela Rai is a CNN political commentator. She is a former executive director and general counsel to the Congressional Black Caucus. Mark Lilla is a professor of the humanities at Columbia and the author of a terrific new book, The Once and Future Liberal. And Roy Blunt Jr. is an author, humorist, and former reporter. He, sent his, he spent his formative years in the American South, and that region continues to be somewhat of a muse for him. He's written book after book about it, including a biography of Robert E. Lee. Mark Lilla, let me start with you. Steve Bannon is out of the White House, but his intellectual influence seems to still dominate in the sense that he said, uh, in effect, he said, I agree with Mark Lilla. I agree with the, the thesis of your book, which is that as long as the left plays identity politics, it's great for the right. And he said, bring it on. I would love to see more of it. And it does appear that Donald Trump, whether he still has him in the White House or not, is still listening to Steve Bannon because that is the strategy the Trump administration and Trump personally is pursuing. If Steve Bannon says it works for him, I'm inclined to agree with him. Uh, He's someone who knows his business. Um, You know, uh, identity politics in this country really means two things. On the one hand, it means a focus on understanding our social problems. And to understand any problem in America, you need to understand identity. But when it comes to addressing those problems, 
identity politics as a strategy has been disastrous. Uh, because rather than establishing a, a connection between those who are affected by these problems and those who may be unaware of them or unaffected, you need a, to build a bridge between people. So you're saying when blacks say these are black issues, you're, you know, whites don't feel like they connect to them. Well, it's even worse than that, I think, in some of the more radical identity groups. They say, you must understand me and my problems, and you can't understand me because you're not me, because you don't belong to my group. And that's a terrific turnoff to people, and uh, it's a missed opportunity to build a bridge and to see that there are certain principles and certain experiences that we share in this country. It's an opportunity to gain allies. And identity liberals just keep shooting themselves in the foot. Um, Angela, the, the problem is identity politics has been played by non-liberals as well. I mean, the, in a sense, the right has always played with some form of identity politics, just white identity politics. I mean, that's what all the dog whistles about race have been. Reagan starting his campaign in Philadelphia, uh, Mississippi, all that stuff, right? Even uh, you think about the war on drugs, you think about um, when the Tea Party uh, rose for the first time and, and they started talking about let's take our country back. You think about Donald Trump saying make America great again. What makes America not great? Well, he announced at the very first moment he uh, came down the escalator in his campaign that Mexicans were drug dealers and rapists. So it's very clear that anything other, right, is, is, is wrong, is bad, is something that you can't relate to and it's damaging the country. I was initially um, nervous about what you would say about identity politics, and I couldn't agree with you more about building bridges. I think the challenge is when I'm forced to communicate my issues in a way that's digestible or comforting to you, then that means that I'm uncomfortable. And so where is the bridge that goes both ways to ensure that we can have a dialogue where we are fostering understanding? And I think for me, as an African-American person, I often find myself on the defense, not just because someone can't relate to me, mm. but because so often I'm in the minority. So it's a minority view from a minority person that you assume is angry. And so there's so many hurdles you have to overcome just to get across that bridge. But your point is find those issues that yeah. unite, economic issues, right. issues of redistribution, right? I mean, no, it's even more than that. It means reinterpreting what the problem is. For example, I'm not a black male motorist. I will never be a black male motorist, and I will never fully understand what it's like to, uh, to be in a situation where you look in the rearview mirror and you see the lights going. However, um, I am a citizen, and I understand what it means not to be equally protected under the law. And if you put the experience under a principle we all share, then people can identify. But if you say that you cannot understand my experience because of your background, you're inviting people to close the door. So, uh, Robin Wright, this gets to the, it seems to me, the fundamental issue at, in your article, which is that we seem to be so far apart. Um, we seem to be so far apart as a country. Mm -hmm. What I've been struck by in the last few days is the stunning degree of support for Donald Trump's position after Charlottesville, uh, the very high support for uh, maintaining every Confederate monument. Uh, these are, you know, these are in the 70% range for Republicans, I think the 80% range on some, depending on how you ask the, the question. Um, and that gets to your article. I mean, is this, is this gulf so wide that you think uh, on the basis of that reporting, we really are in for a new kind of uh, civil strife, if not civil war? 
Well, I think no one's talking about the kind of pitch battles along neat geographic lines that characterized the Civil War 150 years ago. What people are talking about is low-intensity conflict with sporadic, episodic violence uh, that results in calling out the National Guard and that challenges traditional political authority. I think you've seen a number of conditions in this country that get far beyond identity politics, although emerge from identity politics, and that's the polarization, with no middle ground, no meeting place to resolve it. It's the weakened institutions, such as the courts, and uh, it's the abandonment of the higher moral ground by leadership. It's the legitimization of violence as a means of engaging in discourse or resolving disputes, that there are a lot of things that are very worrisome. Now, I am a child. I went to college in the late 60s and the early 70s uh, during the period of the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And uh, the United States has in the past had a process of self-correction through the courts or through legislation. We got back on track. What's worrisome now is that you find that the leadership in the country is not taking that higher moral ground, and it is fanning the flames of polarization. And the firing of Steve Bannon is not going to get us uh, beyond this moment in history, beyond the divisiveness. Uh, the problem started long before Charlottesville, and, and the danger is that because of the kind of support we see by uh, so many behind Donald Trump, that this is something that is going to be with us for quite a while. Roy, how much of this is the South? How much of this is the, 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 you know, the fact that we have never completely come to terms with, with it? I think about it because, you know, when people say, well, there's some similarity to the, the Germans dealt with their past. Well, the Germans dealt with their past partly because it is absolutely clear in modern German interpretation that Goebbels and Himmler and Rommel and all of uh, the Nazi henchmen were bad, terrible, evil people. You would never find a, a statue to them. There is ambivalence about Robert E. Lee. Yeah, well, Robert E. Lee was um, a symbol. You know, I mean, the South, and not just the South, but the whole country seemed to need somebody after the Civil War. The Civil War was a horrible, sordid carnage. It was just a, a horrible thing. The more you read about it, it's just disgusting, that war. So they put up uh, statues. There's a statue in Augusta, Georgia that says, carved on it, uh, no nation rose so white and fair, none fell so pure of crime. That's just like standing out in the corner and saying, we never did anything wrong. We never, we didn't, we're, you know, it's embarrassing. It's ludicrous. So to me, I'd love to take those things down. But, but, and Robert E. Lee was a, a living statue, or a recently uh, deceased statue, who was supposedly pure. And you know, he, had, he never earned a demerit at uh, West Point. And he, uh, and he was a much more complicated man than he was held up to be. We've got to come back. And when we come back, I want to come right back to this issue that Robin Wright raises, which is just how how, how much political conflict and strife are we in for going forward? And we are back with Robin Wright, Angela Rai, Mark Lilla, and Roy Blunt, Jr. Mark, I want to come back to, to you to ask about, again, going forward. It does seem as though the Trump strategy right now is go to your base and play this game of white identity politics. Will it... Will it reinforce a kind of diehard opposition on the left, 
what should the left do? Your book is written as, as you put it, as a once and future liberal. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want them to play identity politics, but what do you do if the other side is playing identity politics? Well, the first thing you, realize, you have to recognize is that it works for them and it doesn't work for us. But beyond that, uh, I, I think what's important here, and it, it showed up in Robin Wright's article, is that there's some glue that's missing in this country, something that keeps us together. We're dr it's not so much a word loggerheads, but we're drifting apart. Um, there once used to be a democratic vision, a democratic party vision, a liberal vision of what we stood for as a nation, what made us citizens, how we could work together in a political way. Uh, on the basis of solidarity and uh, equal protection. Then there was a Reagan view, which was that the less government, the better. We're all by ourselves in our families and churches, and good luck to you. That vision uh, was destroyed by Donald Trump. He destroyed Reagan's party. And now neither party and neither ideology. And in a sense, you're saying liberals never had a response to Reagan's vision. They just kind of retreated into identity politics. Exactly. That was a time, you see, Reagan's vision was anti-political. And it was a time for liberals to make the case for democratic political life and the legitimacy of government and the legitimacy of, of helping each other out. And by retreating, they made a, a tactical mistake, I think. And I, I, I don't think many people have a sense, and I don't think Democrats have a sense, of what their vision of the future was, uh, is. I mean, if you listen to the rhetoric of JFK or FDR or Reagan, you very quickly get a sense of what kind of world they want to, want to create. We don't have that with, without a national narrative without ideologies that even bring parties together, um, we become like elementary particles flying apart, and that's when trouble starts. Angela Rye, how, how, do, how, how do you bring the Democrats or, or the country together? Well, I think first on the Democratic part, obviously, um, as a Democrat, at least someone who votes Democrat, I disagree a little bit. I think recently they've introduced a plan that leans more into economics, which, of course, is a more unifying principle. Um, and I think that there's a struggle when you are known to be a big tent Right. There are a lot of different interests that you have to cater to. And I think that um, historically Democrats have struggled to figure out what is that sweet spot. Um, as well as this country that some folks call melting pot. I prefer jambalaya um, because we're all different and I, I like that we can appreciate differences. Um, the only path forward, I think, is to begin to tell the truth about our history. It's one that is troubled. It's one that is challenging, full of conflicts, and full of hypocrisy. And until we can embrace what that narrative is, as uncomfortable as it might be for some, we're not going to get further ahead. Robin Wright, that seems to me to be a recipe for more conflict, because as we tell that history, there are a lot of people uh, who will say, that's not my history. And uh, as Roy Blunt was saying, that's, you know, that, that, that you're, you're, you're politicizing it, or uh, I just feel like you're going to get a backlash. Well, we haven't, we haven't resolved many of the issues that surfaced during the Civil War, including how do you ensure uh, people of color not only voting rights but equal rights. And so there are a number of haunting uh, questions that still have to be addressed. The 14th Amendment is still deeply uh, divisive in this country. One of the things that's striking about parties is if you look at the period that in the run-up to the Civil War, you saw the disintegration of the two parties, the disintegration of the Whig Party that opened the way for the Republicans and the emergence of Abraham Lincoln and the Democrats dividing into Northern and Southern Democrats. Uh, that there are some 
some kind of uncanny parallels and some haunting questions that this nation has not move together to try to resolve, and it plays out in this issue of statues. How ironic, pieces of steel. Roy Blunt, you covered the civil rights movement the early 60s. You interviewed Martin Luther King. It seems to me Robin Wright's article really uh, suggests that what we might end up with is not, the, not another civil war, but another period like the late 50s uh, and 60s, where you had you know, deep political divisions, some violence, uh, a kind of conflict that didn't seem like it could be mediated. What seems, di what seems similar, and similar and what seems different? Well, I was living in the South then, and uh, you had uh, the uh, lot, you know, majority who was on, majority of white people were on the wrong side, and so were majority of the governors and the uh, police. But um, you had the national level. At the, in the White House, uh, you know, we had Kennedy and Johnson, and they were they were pretty good, but now we have all the way to the top, it's uh, on the wrong side. I mean, we've got a president who can't tell the difference between Nazis and anti-Nazis. Yeah. Um, and that makes it, that's very unsettling, very confusing and very encouraging to the Nazis. Um, and so in some ways, it's, it's, it's more uh, indefinite and scarier now, I think. It, people haven't, I don't even want to get into uh, shooting, but uh, there was lots of that in the civil rights movement, and there are lots of guns out there now. On that sobering note, we have to leave it. <laughs> Thank you all. Next on GPS, from Charlottesville to Spain, cars and trucks used as weapons. Peter Bergen will tell us how we should think of this new favorite tactic of terror. Almost 16 years ago, 19 terrorists hijacked four planes, crashed them into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, and killed 3,000 people in the process. Today, for now at least, terrorists seem unable to weaponize planes. So they have turned to other vehicles, cars and vans. We've seen it in France and the United Kingdom, now in Spain. These attacks are less deadly for sure, but still able to meet the aims of these criminals and terrorists to terrorize the population. What to make of it all? Joining me now is CNN national security analyst, Peter Bergen. Um, Peter, what is the, uh, the big picture? You know, what's your, what was your reaction to watching once again a vehicle used? Well, Farid, since 2014, we've seen 14 of these uh, vehicle attacks in the West. They've killed 129 people. And just as school shooters learn from other school shootings and try and copycat them, you know, terrorists kind of look at tactics that work and copycat them. And obviously, you know, as you referenced, the 9-11 attacks, that required a great deal of training and, 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 and money and time. Uh, the kind of attack we saw in Barcelona uh, doesn't require any of that. When you look at the, these attacks, does it appear to you that it's fair to say um, these guys can't do something more spectacular uh, and that's why they're doing these? Is this sort of the weapon of the week? It's the most convenient, uh, easy way to do something? I agree, because as, as, you, as you look at what unfolded in Barcelona, Farid, I mean, they blew up a bomb which didn't succeed in doing what they wanted. Uh, they had some fake explosives, some of the terrorists who were killed. Uh, they used vehicles to ram. Uh, you know, this is not the ISIS-directed, trained finance attack that we saw in Paris where everybody was armed, everybody was well-trained. Uh, they had bombs. They killed 130 people. So this from what we know right now, looks like an ISIS-inspired attack. ISIS has 
claim that the, the attack was soldiers of the caliphate. That is a formulation they use when uh, they're not actually directly involved in other than in an inspirational way. And that's what this looks like right now, Fareed. The Obama administration had warned that as ISIS was losing ground, losing territory, losing money uh, in Syria and Iraq, uh, it would start, it, there would be a wave of terror attacks, particularly returning ISIS warriors uh, going back to Europe. Uh, is, has that played itself out and is this one of them? Well, yes and no. I mean, the, the yes of that is uh, the French just said earlier this month that they've had 271 militants return from Iraq and Syria. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, there is a concern about foreign fighters who may have come back over the last several years. Uh, but, the, but that concern is receding now because so many are now dying in place on the battlefields of Iraq and Syria. What does one do about this kind of attack? Is it the new normal? And, and I guess, relatedly, who are these people? Well, I think it is the new normal, and we've seen it. It's not just jihadi terrorists. We've seen an attack by an anti-Muslim fanatic in North London killing Muslim, a Muslim attending a Ramadan celebration outside a, a London mosque. We saw, of course, in Charlottesville, and a right-wing extremist killing somebody. I mean, and so protecting against these attacks, I think, uh, is impossible because there's so many potential targets. Uh, you will, you can protect, obviously, uh, you know, very high-profile events, very symbolic targets, but. You know, then you run into the problem of, well, you protect those targets and then there are just a lot of other targets to go after. So really, the key here, Farid, I think, is peers and family members. Again and again, when law enforcement has looked at this question, the people who know most about radicalization and potential plot planning are peers and family members. And enlisting them and getting them to come forward, which is obviously not that easy necessarily, is the way to stop this. Peter Bergen, always a font of wisdom on this subject. Thank you so much. Thank you, Farid. Next on GPS, global lessons on how to memorialize a troubled, shameful past without lionizing the perpetrators. What the American South can learn from, of all places, Germany. Now for our What in the World segment. I want to start by pronouncing, I hope correctly, a huge German word. Vergangenheitsbewältigung. Try saying that twice. In typical German fashion, it is a word that means something very specific, reckoning with the past. And it's entirely appropriate that it should be a distinctly German word because the concept is one that has been taken more seriously by modern Germany than any country in the world, certainly including the United States. Over the years since World War II, Germany has gone through the difficult national process of reckoning with its history and the country has gradually come to accept a sense of collective guilt. It has not been immune to pushback and backlash. There have been far-right nationalist parties. Today, there's one called the Alternative for Germany. But by and large, the country has rejected its Nazi past. Some of this is because of laws. Anyone who uses the swastika or performs a Hitler salute in Germany faces potential prison time. There are strict prohibitions against hate speech. Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, was not published in Germany for 70 years until the copyright expired. Nowadays, you can barely walk the streets of Berlin without being reminded of the dead. Around the country, there are tens of thousands of brass plaques in the ground called stumbling blocks, which each bear witness to a Nazi victim who lived at that location. It's an ongoing project, privately funded and overseen by a German artist who started it in the 1990s. Around the same time, the German government commissioned an official monument with a design that followed essentially the opposite approach. Rather than memorializing each individual victim throughout the country, the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe 
is a symbolic cemetery at the heart of Berlin to collectively honor the victims, most of whom never got a proper burial and many of whose names are still unknown. These memorials haven't been without controversy. The so-called stumbling blocks have offended some people who say the Holocaust victims are being trampled daily and the city of Munich went so far as to ban them. But this kind of debate is healthy. Wrestling with the country's history is not easy and should not be easy. America is now wrestling as well. There is a Museum of African American History, but museums and monuments serve two different purposes. The South is still littered with monuments honoring, celebrating the people whose only claim to fame was that they marched and fought in mutinous opposition to the government of the United States because they wanted to defend slavery. A study by the Southern Poverty Law Center last year found there were still more than 700 Confederate monuments, and that's on top of all the counties, cities, public schools, and military bases named for Confederates. By contrast, there are relatively few memorials to the millions of slaves who were violently oppressed in these same lands. Ironically, one of the reasons why Germany was able to successfully confront its past was America. When it occupied Germany after World War II, the Allied powers prohibited the display of any monument, memorial, poster, statue, edifice, street or highway name marker, emblem, tablet or insignia, which tends to revive militarism or commemorate the Nazi party. The U.S. urged Germany to demonstrate to Europe and the world that it could bury its militarism and Nazism, and it welcomed a new Germany with honor into Europe and the world. The circumstances are very different, of course, but some of the lessons from Germany might well apply in America today. Next on GPS, President Trump has never hidden his disdain for the nuclear deal with Iran. The stupidest deal of all time. Now it appears he is ready to kill it. What would that mean? We'll explore when we come back. Tensions between the United States and Iran have been red hot in recent weeks, and they might be about to get even hotter. There have been warning shots fired by U.S. ships against Iranian ones and very close calls when Iranian drones have buzzed the U.S. military. President Trump will be called upon to certify that Iran is in compliance with the nuclear deal. Remember, he once termed it the worst deal ever. But twice now, as required under law, his administration has declared Iran in compliance. However, he personally has said he expects to declare Iran non-compliant when the next review is due. And a report in foreign policy says the president has put together a team of aides to pull together the intelligence so he can do just that. Earlier this week, presumably responding to these news reports, Iran's President Rouhani said his nation's nuclear program could be restarted within hours if new U.S. sanctions are imposed. My next guest was key to putting the sanctions into place that caused the Iran deal to happen. Former Treasury and CIA official David Cohen joins me now. David Cohen, pleasure to have you on. Glad to be here. So Donald Trump says that he is sure that Iran is not in compliance, but he wants to do a review. I don't understand this. How is, is this. Is this standard? Is this completely unprecedented for the president to kind of arrive at a conclusion first and then have a process? Well, it's, it's very uh, disconcerting. Um, and, it, and it stands the intelligence process on its head. The question that the president is asked to, to certify every 90 days under legislation that Congress enacted uh, in, as part of the Iran nuclear deal is whether Iran 
is complying with its obligations under the deal or whether it's in material breach of any of those obligations. That is obviously a political judgment, but undergirding that is an intelligence, intelligence assessment. Our intelligence analysts who have access to all of our clandestine collection, access to what our allies around the world are collecting, and access to IAEA reports and other open source information are in the best position to make that assessment of whether Iran is complying with the nuclear deal. What the president has said is that in his judgment, Iran's not complying, and then he has asked a group in the White House to provide him with justification, with intelligence to support his preconceived notion that Iran is not complying with a nuclear deal. If our intelligence is degraded because it is politicized in the way that it looks like the president wants to do here, that undermines the utility of that intelligence all across the board, whether we're talking about North Korea, whether we're talking about counterterrorism, Venezuela, you name the international problem, we need others around the world to work with us. And one way we get others to work with us is by being able to use our intelligence and for people to believe that it's credible and reliable. If it's politicized, that credibility and reliability is undermined. What would it mean for the U.S. to say that our Iran is not complying in the, in the context that the agency tasked with figuring this out internationally, the IAEA, has said it is complying? Right. The, the problem is manifold. The first is if the United States determines that Iran is not complying, if the president refuses to, to certify Iranian compliance, it can go to the United Nations and seek to have the sanctions that were suspended snap back into place. But as a practical matter, you're not going to have the rest of the international community. You're not going to have our allies in Europe. You're certainly not going to have the Russians and the Chinese coming along with us to reimpose real pressure on the Iranians. So you'll have this fissure between the United States and essentially the rest of the world in trying to reinstate pressure on Iran. And how do you think uh, the, uh, those other countries will react? Because the way I look at it, they will say, well, look, the IAEA tells us Iran is in compliance. You think they're not. You can put back whatever sanctions you want. That way we get to do business with Iran without any American firms to worry about and compete with us. Right. It, it, it fundamentally won't work, right? Because if you don't have the other countries agreeing to adhere to these sanctions, they will have their own domestic laws that allow their businesses to do, to do work with the Iranians. And you know, American businesses will be disadvantaged and there won't be any real pressure on Iran. On the other side of the coin, the Iranians, with the U.S. having pulled out of the deal, will feel that they are absolved from adhering to their commitments under the nuclear deal. So maybe they will begin to spin more centrifuges. Maybe they will begin to build up more enriched uranium. Everything that the deal is designed to prevent Iran from doing. And it's important to point out that they do some things that the U.S. objects to and protests um, and that are, in fact, antithetical to U.S. interests. Absolutely. Like testing missiles. Right. But they were never part of the deal. They're not, they're not, uh, they, they were not disallowed under the deal from testing missiles. That's right. They, that was not part of the nuclear deal. 
but it's it's terribly significant. The Iranians, uh, you know, continue to engage in behavior that is destabilizing the region. They continue to support terrorist activity. We continue to have sanctions in place addressing those activities. The nuclear deal was designed to address Iran's nuclear program. It wasn't designed to address everything about the Iranian regime that is troublesome. And we need to continue to address those other issues. But there's no reason to you know, throw out the nuclear deal because we are dissatisfied with the Iranian behavior in other areas. David Cohen, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Next on GPS, you don't hear much about Guam usually. Thanks to North Korea, though, it was atop the news recently. Now that threat seems to have subsided, but there is another problem, this one rather slithery, that the island has to contend with. I'll explain. Last week, Google fired a male employee over his 3,300-word memo that claimed women are underrepresented in tech, partly because of biological differences such as higher neuroticism and interest in people. Today, only 31% of Google's employees are women. In the company's tech sector, that number falls to 20%. It brings me to my question of the week. What percentage of Fortune 500 CEOs are women? 32%? 27%, 19%, or 6%? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. This week's book of the week is Mark Lilla's new book, The Once and Future Liberal After Identity Politics, which you heard about earlier in the show. It's a terrific short book about the decline of American liberalism, explaining how the Democrats went from the successes of FDR's coalition to the pitfalls of today's identity politics. It's an accessible book that's essential reading for anyone who wants to understand how we arrived in the Trump era, and where the Democrats go from here. Now for the last look. This week, residents of Guam breathed a sigh of relief after North Korea announced that Kim Jong-un would watch a little more the foolish and stupid conduct of the Yankees before deciding to launch missiles near the island. But there is another problem pestering this paradise. Although there are only 163,000 people on the island, there are as many as two million brown tree snakes. That's right. For every one human, there are 12 of this invasive species slithering through the trees. These serpents have reportedly cost millions by regularly shorting the island's electrical systems. They have killed most of Guam's native bird species. And did I mention 12 snakes for every human? The solution seems to be drugged mice. You see, it turns out brown tree snakes love to eat mice and are easily killed by acetaminophen, in other words, Tylenol. Put that in dead mice and parachute them around the island, and you've delivered last meals for many snakes. The USDA has done this multiple times before, going back at least seven years, and they are now set for another round in October, giving the beleaguered Guamanians a slightly less terrifying reason to look toward the sky. The answer to my GPS challenge question this week is D, only 6% or a total of 32 CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are female. While this might seem startlingly small, there are more female CEOs in the Fortune 500 list than ever before, meaning this tiny figure still does signify progress. Women fare slightly better in the tech world at large of all computing employees, and that includes jobs like programmers, developers, and IT support. Only 26% were female, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But even with things looking up, there is a long way to go. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week.
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.